we are starting a new series today. And I'm really looking forward to this series. This series is called A People Following Christ, which is really cool. We've never done a series called A People Following Christ, even though that's our thing at Parker Ford, is we call ourselves PFC, People Following Christ. It's on our big poster right there. And uh, this is the, the reason we're going through this series is because some of us, I, I think all of us at times, kind of ask, like, what does it mean to be in a deep abiding relationship with God? And if we're here at this church For most of us, the reason we're here is because we want a deep relationship with God. I mean, yeah, sure, there's people or even times in our lives where maybe we're just coming to church to try to self-justify or check the box or maybe we're just struggling. We don't know what we're looking for and we just show up at church. All those like, hey, if you're here, you're here. God bless you. We're all glad you're here. But the, the basic sense of why we're a part of church is to know God together. Right? I mean, that's what we're trying to do, is engage more with God, to follow the Lord. And, but then there's this sense within us, at times, this questioning of, like, am I, am I experiencing all the fullness of God? And if not, like, what's that look like? What, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And um, we have these things uh, called membership expectations, which aren't about, that's always a dangerous thing, because they're not requirements for membership, and it can kind of come across that way. What they are is, as followers of Christ, what are the basic principles that you see in Scripture of the people who are following Christ? So we expect that anyone who's going to follow Christ looks like those in the Scriptures who are following Christ. And that's, so it's just kind of the, expecta- the biblical expectation. What does it look like as followers of Christ? And so what we're going to do is we're going to break down those principles that we've seen in Scripture by looking at the different followers of Jesus and looking at the words of Jesus when he speaks to followers and he calls them to come follow him. And so part of the epiphany thing of like asking the Lord to reveal more of himself is also asking the Lord to show us more fully what it means to be his followers. And we enter into that conversation by making it very clear that we can't earn any of God's love whatsoever. So when we're like talking about like, what does it mean to more fully follow Christ? That's not, that, that's not about, that doesn't change him or his view toward us. You know, all that does is change our capacity to have our minds and our hearts opened up to more of this God who loves us and who cares for us. So um, the first message today is uh, coffee and donuts or bread and wine. And uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? One who has coffee and donuts or one who has bread and wine. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be looking at. What is, the, what, is the, what is the food of the people who are followers of Christ? And uh, we're going to start by looking at John chapter 6. And the reason we're going to uh, start at John chapter 6 is because this is the moment in Jesus' ministry where people have to make some serious decisions about whether or not they are kind of enjoying the bandwagon of Christ's rising acclaim or whether they're committed followers of him. And Jesus does this to us all the time. He puts these moments in front of us that are like, they're, they're, they're moments where we have to choose to step across the line. And that's what happens in John chapter six. Um, and so Jesus, he has been wildly, wildly popular in the Northern part of Israel. And his ministry is explosive. Like it is Absolute, we, we don't have a framework for this. This isn't like a fast-growing church or some person who releases a book about how to self-improve, who people get around and like it. It's not like that sort of thing. This is a whole other thing. This is like miracles happening, mind-blowing stuff, and people are like, who in the world is this guy? He's going to take over. 
is going to take over and everyone's on board. It's like a very, very pleasurable thing for people to be following Jesus at this point. I mean, because you can just imagine, like, if you've ever seen some of the, uh, the uh, magicians out there, like, uh, uh, I can't remember any of their names right now, um, the magicians who just do phenomenal things. It's just, it's just a lot of fun to see them. Watching Jesus and knowing there's no tricks and watching someone have that much command in the spiritual world must have just been amazing. And then hearing the teachings that soothe your soul and give you epiphany all the time, man, this guy was awesome and people were loving it, just loving it. And then we get to John chapter 6 and this is the moment, the first moment where the followers of Jesus hit a major snag. And I think that this moment becomes a definitional moment for helping us understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. So with all that said, Jesus now has, he started this teaching. And as he's teaching, what's going on is he's telling them that you remember when your, when your great-great-grandparents had manna from heaven where like food just showed up randomly and they ate the bread from heaven and it was awesome? He's like, well, God sent me to you. I'm the bread from heaven and you need to eat my flesh. Okay, that just got really weird. And there's that moment where like everything was cool and this was great and you had to go and make it weird, Jesus. You know, why did you say that thing? Like, and, and I'm sure his PR people would have gotten all over that, you know. Um, and then he says something that goes far beyond the awkwardness of eating human flesh. He says, you have to drink my blood. Now, this is, a, this is illegal for Jews, okay? So Jesus is asking them to do something and saying something needs to happen that clearly the law has said is not okay. As a matter of fact, they couldn't eat a certain kind of animal if it was killed a certain kind of way. You remember how they, what, what kind of animal they couldn't eat? You couldn't eat an animal that was strangled. Why couldn't you eat an animal that was strangled? Because it still had blood in it. It wasn't cut and bled out. And so if there was blood in the meat, you weren't allowed to eat the meat because you were definitely not allowed to consume blood. That was the law of God to the Israelites. Do not drink blood. Major, major crime in the, in the Old Testament law. And Jesus is saying, not only am I asking you to drink blood, I'm asking you to drink not just animal blood, but human blood. If you touched a carcass of something that was dead, then you were unclean according to the law. Jesus is asking them to feast on his flesh and to drink his blood. We can imagine at this point why the Jews would be like, this just got super, super weird. Why did you say that? That's wrong. That's wrong. And so you can imagine their confusion. Jesus takes it to another level. In verse 52 of John chapter 6, this is our text for today. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Give us his flesh to eat. So notice something here. Who were they disputing with? Each other. Who was the one who made the statement? Did they dispute with Jesus? This is the funny thing that happens. When, when God says something and we don't understand all of what he says and we're frustrated about that, where do we typically take our frustrations? Yeah. 
well, this is, he must have meant this. And this person's saying, well, he must have meant this. And we're like, all right, we're going to break fellowship over that one. And hence, like, massive division in the church all over the place. Because when we have disputes, when we're frustrated, when we don't fully understand something, our general inclination is to dispute with each other and to argue with each other. Just try going to a Bible college dorm and watch what happens in the lobby. You know, when all the students are sitting there after their theology class, railing on each other about who's smarter, you know. But in reality, when it comes to something, when I'm reading something in here and I don't understand it, where's the very first place that I should go with that? Lord, reveal this thing to me. Make it plain. How can I understand it? unless you speak it to me. Remember that uh, Ethiopian who's out in the desert who's reading the book of Isaiah and he has no idea what it says? And God teleports Philip to show up because he's answering the prayer of this guy who's reading the scripture and wants to understand it. And God's like, I'll find a way to answer your questions for you if you're truly seeking. But typically what happens in the church, often what happens in the church or or among us in general, is that uh, we just kind of, keep it up in our own heads, and we kind of argue with each other about what we don't understand. And it was not understandable. So verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Notice the double truly there. That's important. He's like, for real, for real. You know, very, very real here. Honestly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What? Are you kidding me? This guy who's been doing all this amazing stuff and who we're all following is sitting here looking at us right now and saying, unless you eat my flesh and unless you drink my blood, you don't even have life in you. What? Crazy, crazy statement. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay, we need to stop and just process a little bit. So, um, what is Jesus talking about here? What is the idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood? What imagery comes to your mind looking back 2,000 years now? What imagery comes to your mind when Jesus says that? Okay, death on the cross. And how's that work itself out? The Last Supper. Why the Last Supper? Someone else. Communion. Yeah, what does Jesus say at communion? Someone else that would make us think this. He says it, right? This is my body. This is, this is my blood. And so we have that looking back. We're like, oh, maybe that's what he meant. There's this weird thing that happens with Jesus all the time. And uh, we were talking about this the other day. I forget who I was talking with this about. But like Jesus always says stuff before it happens and before you can understand it. You ever notice that? Like we talked about this before when he was in the upper room and he breathes on everyone in the upper room after he was resurrected. And he says, I give you the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit didn't show up. He's just like, have the Holy Spirit. You know how weird that was? You just imagine if he just breathes on you? Like, weird moment. But then, like, later, they're in that same upper room and they're praying and the Holy Spirit comes down. You know how weird it was when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, but no one knew about the Last Supper yet? Very, very weird. Why does Jesus do this stuff? 
if they couldn't understand it? Well, there's a couple things that are important to recognize. One is we assume that it's about the Last Supper. And, of course, in some way it really is about the Last Supper. But for them in that moment when they didn't understand the Last Supper and they didn't understand the cross, he was still speaking to them in the moment. This wasn't just for posterity so we could look back and read about it. What Jesus is doing is there is a shock value that's important. But he's trying to say that you need to consume me. You can't be a follower and stand back here and watch and listen, but follow me from a distance. It's not even just that when I'm walking, you're walking behind me following. You actually need to consume me. In the way that in the desert, they needed food in order to live, so they had to consume the food. In the way in Garden of Eden, where I gave all the fruit, and you had to eat the right fruit and consume the right fruit that was from God. In the same way, every need that you have in life can be found by consuming what? Me, the deepest need that you have is to be loved, to be known, and to be named. And you can get that when you come to me. And in the same way that we would every day, this morning, even even this morning when I was, uh, uh, this morning Evan came to me and he was like, Dad, we got a problem. I'm like, what? And he's like, the bin in our fridge that holds the milk is filled up with milk and there's not any milk in the jug. There must have been a hole in it. And I'm like, oh, it's gonna, you're just going to have to eat the cereal out of the bin, dude. So, um, yeah, you got it, yeah. So when it comes to our food, there's a part of us that just knows instinctually. Our, there's a hunger in our stomach and it says, I need something to eat. If I'm going to be effective today, I got to eat. And so I go and find something to eat. And what he's saying is in your spirit, there is a part of you that hungers and thirsts and it will only be satisfied by me. You must have me. Not an idea of me, not religion, not cool miracles. You need me. Audacious statement. As weird as saying eat flesh and drinking blood is, even weirder probably is to say that what you actually need, what this entire world needs, is for one person to say, everyone in this world, what they need is a little more of me. There's all sorts of people behind microphones and screens who are trying to say that to people every day in our world. But there's only one who can actually say that. That what we all need is him. Him. So that's one interpretation, one part of what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood is we got to consume Jesus. we got to be hungry for Jesus. we got to regularly be about Jesus and to receive the, him as our satisfaction of the need of our lives, of our spirit. And that's why he says it's true food. It's real food and real flesh. And yet he says it gives eternal life, not physical life. Because what he's trying to say is in the physical world, you need physical food. In the spiritual world, you need me. I'm the food. Eat this. Eat this. Drink this. That's your, that's your nourishment. Your nourishment is not knowing the right stuff or doing the right stuff. Your nourishment is me. You got to have a relationship with me. Okay, so that's the first thing. All right. Um, second thing then, of course, is that he does mean communion. He does mean Eucharist. He does mean the table, the altar table. He means that, that this body broken, this bloodshed, you can't enter in to the relationship unless you receive that. All right, now let's keep going here. 
Um, Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now here's the thing. Here's where the big clues come in, in this passage, I think. And recently, I, this is where I, as I was studying this, I'm like, oh man, there's two big tip-offs to what it is that Jesus is saying. And they're found in verse 59. Seems like the most unimportant verse. And yet it's radically important. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Remember, context, when it comes to reading the Bible, is so important. Context, knowing the context of the broader text of Scripture, but also knowing the context in which this stuff was spoken. So Jesus is in this town called Capernaum. And you know Capernaum is the base of Jesus' ministry. That's home base, not home for him. Nazareth is home, which is north of Capernaum. And he went to Nazareth and spoke in the synagogue. We have two two pictures in uh, Scripture where we see Jesus teaching in the synagogue. There's, uh, it says that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues all the time. We get insight into that synagogue teaching twice. Once is up in Nazareth, and what happens when he's up in Nazareth? Anybody remember? What's that? Yeah, the Spirit of the Lord, he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This, prophecy, this passage is fulfilled in your presence today, right? Yeah, and so Jesus claims that he's the fulfillment of the prophetic prophecy um, from Isaiah. Awesome moment. And their response is, we're going to kill him. They, he basically walks outside and they're like, who, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, hello. He just claimed to be God of the universe. You know, that one that Josh was reading the creation account about this morning? Like, he claimed to be that one, you know? And, of course, that's blasphemy. Of course, they try to kill him, ne'er to return to Nazareth. He couldn't do any miracles there anyway because no one had any faith, which is why they couldn't hear him. When he gets down to Capernaum, on the other hand, there's a little more that's working for him. It's not his hometown, and there's a lot of miracles going on, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening. And yet, there's a problem with Capernaum too, isn't there? I don't know if you remember what Jesus' words are about Capernaum as he's coming toward the end of his ministry. He says, you know, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen a fraction of the things that Capernaum saw, they all would have turned and repented. But you, Capernaum, you haven't listened to a word I've said, even though I've done the most amazing signs here. You will be burnt to the ground. Every stone will be taken down and it will not be rebuilt. If you go to Israel today, there's a town of Capernaum there, and it's about this high, and it's rubble that they discovered. And the only thing in all of Capernaum is a church that's over Peter's mother-in-law's home that's sitting there as a, a memory of Christ. Capernaum was destroyed. Why? Because Jesus put himself, his very presence, the presence of God, headquarters of God in Capernaum and did all the amazing, powerful things, and spoke profound messages, and healed people in amazing ways, and yet Capernaum decided not to follow Jesus. Not to follow Jesus. When did they decide not to follow Jesus? John chapter 6. Jesus is in the synagogue, and he decides, okay, I've been doing all this stuff, but I'm going to speak now, and I'm going to invite them into a deeper relationship. 
and I'm going to invite them into this moment. Where does he do it? Where's the physical location in Capernaum that he does it? Synagogue. All right. Clue number two, synagogue. Okay. Synagogue is a very, very interesting theme in scripture. And we've talked about this before. God ordained a place of worship for the people of Israel. What did he ordain? What was the place of worship? The temple. First the tabernacle, then the temple. You remember what tabernacle means? Anybody know what tabernacle means? There's another name for it. Tent of meeting. Who's meeting there? Yeah, Moses is meeting with God. It has the presence of God. So then when it comes to the time of Solomon, David really wanted to build a temple and he wasn't allowed to and because God said his son was going to do it. So his son builds the temple. Anybody know what the word temple means? Anybody remember this from our Ephesians Bible study, our church Bible study last year? To, to cut. Nice. That was awesome. So to cut, why does the temple mean to cut? Because the temple isn't, that's just not unique to the Israel uh, the, the, the nation of Israel and to the Jewish faith has a, a universal word, temple. What happens at the temple? Sacrifice. Cut. To cut. So two things about the way God designed our faith. One is to meet with him. But we are fallen and broken and we need help in being able to meet with him. So the temple is the place where God's presence dwells among his people. But in order to access that, there's a holy of holies that keeps God's sacred space, this beautiful sacred space. But for the rest of us who are a mess and who are fallen, there's God puts in place a law that we're to obey. And when we mess up that law, there's this temple, this tabernacle that has this whole system around it where there can be sacrifice and atonement made and worship happening so we can still approach the presence of God who is holy without tainting his holiness and still have his presence among us. It's this amazing thing where God gives grace to the people of Israel through the form of sacrifice in the law. We often have this thing in our mind that says grace is only New Testament and law has nothing to do with grace. But the law was God's grace of how God's presence could be with his people through the sacrificial system. The problem was is that we, we were never good enough to be able to keep the sacrificial system well. But then they go, um, they get put in exile because why did the Israelites get put in exile? Where, where were they in exile? Where did they go? Babylon, yeah. And why were they in Babylon? Why did God send them there? They were pulling away from God. They didn't want God's presence. They wanted, they wanted the identity of being the people of God. They wanted God's power available for their lifestyle. But it was obvious from their life that their pursuit in life was not to know and follow God. That their pursuit in life was to be their own gods and do their own thing. But they wanted God's power to help make that work well. And when God said, you stopped seeking my face, you stopped the main thing, I'm going to have to do something here to turn you back to me. I'm going to send you away from my presence. For 70 years, and by the end, you are going to be hungry for the presence of God. Hungry for the presence of God. Thirsty for the Spirit of God. Because there will be a famine of the presence of God for 70 years. And by the end, there will be people who will hunger and thirst for me again. And they will come back to the well. And they did. And Nehemiah did. Now last week, Josh had us praying about uh, the Daniel prayer. 
And Daniel's prayer was for mercy for the people of Israel. And that's while they were in exile. And he was praying like, God, we've done it wrong. We need your help. Restore us. When people went into exile and they no longer had God's presence among them, Jerusalem and the temple was way over there and they couldn't interact with God. There's two responses, three responses that people made. The one response was they kind of gave up on God and they assimilated into Babylonian culture and they just became Babylonians. Second thing, was that there was people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who regularly p- prayed for God to restore them to, uh, to Jerusalem so they could set up the temple. And they, they were so good at praying, God restore us, God make us whole, that they were so consistent that it led to being thrown into a lion's den because people could bank on the fact that they'd be praying for that. And then there was a third response, and the third response was they created a religious system that God had not ordained so that they could still feel comfortable about their faith without having the presence of God. And what was that religious system? You have a tenant meeting, and you have the temple, and then there's another religious institution, synagogue. When did God tell them to start the synagogue? He didn't. And as a matter of fact, in Revelation, that's called the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because it's a form of godliness, but denies the power and the presence of God. It's the thing that allows people to feel good about the religious thing, but doesn't actually have a relationship with God. It doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to that eternal life thing. So here Jesus is in the place where he sets up headquarters, the presence of God. He's come to his people way more real than he ever had in the temple. And he sets up in Capernaum. And you just see Jesus, God, in the flesh, walking around, touching people, loving people. And he's here doing all this stuff. And in the midst of that, they're not receiving him. They're receiving all the stuff about him. And so he goes into the synagogue where the false religion has come. Where, and, the, and the way this false religion came, what the synagogue is, the synagogue means two things. House of teaching and house of fellowship. And what happens when we want to still have religion happening, but we don't go after the presence of God, is what we do is we take people who can teach very good biblical things or scriptural things or spiritual things and then there's followers of those teachers who like what those people are saying but it doesn't lead to a deep abiding relationship with God. It leads to a religious following. And so then the synagogue, it used, to be that, it used to be that everyone who was a Jew before going into exile, there was one place of worship where they all went and it was the temple. And it was this unifying thing where everyone knew this is the presence of God and we are a family who comes together to the presence of God. By the time they came back from exile, even though they were rebuilding the temple, now there was religious communities all over the place, each with their own. There's Pharisees over here and there's Sadducees over here and there's this rabbi who has this synagogue and this rabbi who has this synagogue. And the whole community has been splintered into all these different people teaching all these different things in all their different religious communities. Sound familiar? Yeah. Now, in the Jewish faith, when you look back at the, at the Jewish faith, there is, there's a name for the, the Jewish faith that comes from that period, the exilic period, is called Second Judaism. Second wave Judaism. New Judaism. And when you refer back to pre-exile, there's this, there's this other term called the temple cult. And cult means one. 
And what that's saying is, is back then we believed that all the faith went through the temple. But then since then, we believe that faith can be discerned as just people kind of discuss the scripture in their local communities and do their best to apply it. So as people gather together in fellowship, trying to apply the scriptures, but don't have the power and the presence of God, and there's no cutting, there's no sacrifice, and there's no presence. That's when we get to a place where there's false religion. Oftentimes, right here, right now, for us, what we have is we have, we can, and I, I'm not just talking about Parker Ford Church. I'm saying in America, in the Western world right now, we have a lot of people who can preach the Bible and a lot of people who are trying hard to apply that toward their lives and are hanging out together trying to figure out how can we do this more effectively. What we tend to lack is the actual leaning in the brokenness that comes and says, I need you, God. I'm a mess, but I need your presence. And it used to be for 2,000 years, this thing right here was the center of Christian worship, the altar table, communion. But right now, the center of Christian worship is what's happening right now, coming out of my mouth, the sermon. And what can happen is we try to hear a sermon that makes sense of this and try to apply it, and we have a self-man-made thing that we're trying to keep going, and it doesn't lead to life and freedom. But when we say, I'm broken and the scriptures are revealing to me what's not working well and I'm bringing that to you, God, and asking for forgiveness and restoration, then you can bring me into the place where I can engage in the living presence of God. Not because I figured out how to do it by working well to fulfill the scriptures, but because I received the brokenness of Christ on my behalf. Now, I need to transition and say a couple things to kind of apply all this to us and what, the, what in the world that has to do with us as followers of Christ right now. Here's the thing. Covenant. The word covenant. When Jesus breaks that bread and takes the cup, he says, this is the, this is the covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Covenant is the agreement between a relationship. And when we look at what Capernaum wanted from Jesus, they wanted someone who brought him all sorts of cool stuff and gave him a bunch of teaching. But what they didn't want to do is listen to him when he didn't make sense. Were they going to be able to understand the body broken and the bloodshed and eating flesh? No. But they could submit to it and receive it. And instead, what we're told is this is the moment when most of Jesus' followers leave. And in the next few verses, what you hear is he turns to the 12 apostles and he says, all right, your turn. Are you guys going to bounce too? And they say, where could we go? You have the words of life. In other words, you don't make any sense to me right now, but I know that if I don't eat and consume you, that I don't have life. I've been following you long enough to know that even when you don't make sense, you have the roadmap that I don't have, and I need to be with you. So I'm just staying with you even if you don't make sense to me right now. Jesus is inviting Capernaum and the people of Capernaum into a deep relationship with God. And he is not offering them just teaching and fellowship. He's offering them a sacrifice that allows them to have an abiding relationship with him and to form a covenant with him. The, different, the difference between a covenant and a contract, of course, we've talked about this before. I, I give you something, you give me something as a contract. A covenant is a binding promise to stay together. And the covenant of Jesus is not built on our faithfulness. It's built on his sacrifice. And so in this moment, Jesus is offering them an eternal solution. And I think this is the important thing about a covenant, is that if we don't have a covenantal relationship with God, then I always have to ask myself this question. Am I doing enough to earn God's favor right now? Am I doing enough to be a follower of Jesus? Am I faithful enough? 
Am I moral enough? Do I read my Bible enough? These haunting questions that can really, uh, when, when there's a religious system, people can constantly be asking, am I doing enough? Am I faithful enough? And there's this tension in their heart. But here's the thing about God, and this is what the covenant reveals. God is not the God of a one-night stand or a summer fling. God is not on the market to see who the most beautiful or faithful Christian is out there so he can say, I like them. God's love is unending. It's undying. It's from the beginning, front end loaded when he puts the ring on his bride's finger and he says, there's not one thing that you can do that's going to take my love away from you, just go ahead and try and see what happens. That's God's kind of love. And a covenantal kind of love says, I want to invite you into a relationship. But what it means is there is a two-way thing to this. And the two-way thing isn't anything that you have to earn, but it is something that you have to receive. And you have to receive the identity of what it means to be a covenant member of Christ, which means you have to follow me like you no longer live, like I'm the one. When I come to you, I don't come to you as just a friend or just one coming underneath of you. I also come as God and, the, and, and your central appetite. I come as the center of your life. And that's what he invites us into. And that's what the covenant is. Now, what happens in baptism, of course, and so covenant membership, is there's this moment where, where uh, when people would go under the waters of baptism in, in Acts chapter 2, you remember how 3,000 people came to Christ, and it says all of them were baptized that day. And so all of them were baptized in a single day, 3,000 people. And it says, and, the Lord, and so 3,000 were added to their number that day is what it says. And then the next passage talks about how they interact with each other. So what did church membership look like in the New Testament? Church membership, we might say, well, there was no such thing as church membership. But in Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, it all talks about membership and membership as a part of the body of Christ. It's a functional part of a singular identity. And the only reason why we have church membership and they didn't used to have church membership is because it used to mean when you were baptized that you were baptized into the church. Because when you think about it, in Jerusalem, there was only one church in the whole Jerusalem area. And so there's Christians who are following Jesus and when they go under the waters, it's a public display. It says, okay, now we're a part of the body of Christ. And if you have a problem with someone in the body of Christ in Jerusalem, what do you do? Seriously, literally, like what do you what did they do in Jerusalem if they had a problem with each other or if they had a struggle in the church? You've got to figure it out. You're in a covenant with one another. There's no option. When Jen and I, if we have a disagreement, we've got to figure it out. We're in a covenant. I put a ring on her finger. She put one on mine. We said vows to each other. We're in a covenant. You've got to figure it out. And there was only one church. You can't shop the market, you know? And there's no dating relationship left. See, what can often happen is our relationship with one another we don't necessarily see as a covenant. Our relationship with God may be a covenant where his love is undying and unending. But has he ever called us to a love for one another that is in any way different than his love for us? The whole point of our love for one another is to reveal his glory and reveal his image. So when we have a disagreement, when there's a struggle, there is only one answer to that problem. Figure it out by the grace of God. There is no bailing. There is no cutting out. Because when I do, I make the exact same decision that they made in Capernaum, which says, I don't know that I can follow that 
I don't know that I understand that. I don't know that that makes sense. See, covenant is when God calls me to something that's far beyond my understanding or when I'm in that relationship, the covenantal relationship with the people of God where Gretchen and I just, we're not feeling it, you know? There is something here that we have different perspectives from each other and there's some sort of tension. We don't actually have that. I'm just an example. But if we do, there's that, there's that thing where in the synagogue system, there's another rabbi. There's another, in the covenantal system of God, there is only one family of God. If I want to grow deeper in my relationship with God, there was already a sacrifice made to forgive me. Father, forgive me as I also forgive others. And our relationship with God is deeply, intrinsically, and eternally tied with our relationship with one another, which is why you cannot love God without also loving your brother. And the second commandment is like the first, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And church membership, and this was all about church membership today because we were going to have membership today. Um, But what church membership is, is it's that moment that says, okay, there's a lot of congregations out there. And so when we get baptized, we tend to think that's an outward sign of my covenant with God. And we've lost the other part of what that means is that covenant is not just with God. That covenant is also with the people of God, with the family of God. We can't have a relationship with God without having a relationship with his family. And he won't break fellowship with me and I won't break fellowship with them. That's covenant membership. That's the point of what it is. And that's what he calls us into so that his glory is worked out through and among us. That's John chapter six. I have about 18 messages on John chapter six and I'm gonna cut this one off right now and let us go home, all right? God, we just thank you and praise you for this time together. And, uh, and I, I am so blessed, so blessed by the fact that, I, that there's a relationship that each one of us is offered right now that is, that is not a membership to the Y or to Costco, that is not a membership to, uh, uh, not membership on a team that I play on, you know, that the membership that you offer to us is the membership to a singular body, a singular identity, and that we can go down in the waters of baptism and let go of who we were and come up as the body of Christ. And God, in our day and age, we don't know how to work that out any more than the people in the synagogue did in Capernaum. We are not any further along necessarily in our ability to understand how you work and who you are. But what we can do right now, God, is just say, when it doesn't make sense and we don't know how, we want your presence. We want to walk with you. We want to say yes at the altar with you. We want to say, yes, we receive your sacrifice. Yes, we receive your presence. Yes, we'll follow you. When it doesn't make sense, we want to go with you. We want to be followers of you. Yes, we'll stick it out together when things are difficult. Yes, we want to be in it with you. We want your spirit producing the fruit that manifests across this community so that your character is being worked out in the, in the congregation here. Yes, we want the presence of Jesus leading us and guiding us into places that are radically uncomfortable, both in our brain and in our actions. But we want you to do that because we want to be led into life and into eternal life and that, that deep, rich, abundant life. And yes, We want to say that we want to be part of your family, Father, which means you're in charge, which means you're the one who we submit to. Do we want that covenant together? We know is the the question that you ask us. And we know that we can't earn it, but we can receive it. 
And so, God, I just ask that, uh, that, that again, right now, Father God, that each one of us who has struggled, who has felt at times like a sheep without a shepherd, who has been wandering, who has needed more, who has been hurting, that we would, we would have a growing sense among us that there is an abiding presence of the great shepherd, the living God, the guide for our souls. And we receive the fact that we can't be in charge and enter this covenant. But we can say, your love will never, ever fail. And we receive it. And we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.